thank you for coming out on this cold night. Just a little warning that next month's review panel here at Brooklyn Public Library is unusually on a Monday, March the 6th. Uh, Peter Plagans, Stephanie Booman, and um, Ava Diaz will be joining me on the podium. The shows we're reviewing will be announced by the weekend. So you can look at artcritical.com for full details. And artcritical.com, by the way, is also the place to go, a place to go, along with the Brooklyn Public Library, YouTube, and iTunes, but is a pretty good place to go for the archive of 11 past years of the review panel, as well as the famous list, The List, which gives the most comprehensive guide to New York art exhibitions um, on the web, and uh, also, of course, Art Critical Magazine with all of its critical acumen. Well, uh, that's a fairly shameless push and plug for artcritical.com. Therefore, let me atone for it by saying how delighted we are to be so, to see so well represented on one panel, review panel, um, our dear esteemed collegiate um, rival, hyperallergic.com, uh, uh, one of its uh, senior editors, uh, John Yao, uh, and, and, and prolific critic there, um, and Jennifer Samet, uh, who uh, uh, publishes her Beer with a Painter um, series of, of dialogues um, there at, the, uh, at Hyperallergic, Hyperallergic Weekend. So John Yao is, of course, one of um, the most senior um, in, in and, and, and revered living American art writers, I think we can say, and belongs to that illustrious tradition of the poet art critic. Um, John has published books on Jasper Johns and other artists, is I believe at work <coughs> on a volume on Thomas Noskowski. That's public information. Can yes, we, it's can be actually, it's, I just finished dealing with all the edits and it's well, now going to go into production. Fantastic. Well, for many of us, that a painter's painter, we all want to read a proper meaty analysis of Thomas Noskowski and Yao is the man to produce it. John Yao and Jennifer Samet, who, as I say, um, is, it, well, as I said, is the, is the voice behind a beer with a painter. Um, they don't always drink beer and they're not always painters. But it's the title is uh, the title gives that good sense of um, heart to hearts and direct questions and vivacious conversations. Um, who was your first ever interviewee on that program, and who was the most recent? Oh, okay. They are always painters, by the way. Oh, they are always painters. Yeah, they I'm never allow to about sculpt that. or photograph no. or anything like. That. Oh, good. No, that's definitely okay. a rule. The okay. beer, you know, is right. not is negligible, but. They are always painters. The most recent one um, was with Tal R, who has an exhibition that is still open for one more week at Chayamin Reed. Um, the first interview published on Hyperallergic Weekend was with Rackstraw Downs. And it had been going a few years before that, or a while before that, in some blog format, yes, elsewhere? I started it on my own website, Beer with a Painter, um, a blog spot. And it was quickly picked up by John Yao. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you, John. Yeah. Excellent. And Jessica Bell Brown is uh, our, our third, my third guest. Uh, Jessica is uh, 
uh, I, oh, by the way, uh, for, for Jen, I forgot to mention that besides her writing, she is a, a scholar and teacher and um, uh, a, cr a curator. Mm -hmm. uh, Jessica Bell Brown is uh, is a writer, and she is also um, finishing up her doctoral dissertation, or that might be a euphemism. She might uh, she be starting it <laughs> at uh, Princeton. Um, uh, so you're at Princeton doing your PhD. What is your dissertation topic? Sure. The, the project is called Bad Attachments, and it looks at painters who were um, like Sam Gilliam and Joe Overstreet who were taking canvas off the stretcher bars and making these kind of spatial interventions with their work. Um, I would also argue that they, t they, although their formal strategies were similar, their um, philosophies behind the work were quite different especially in regards to thinking about um, belonging and racial identity. Um, and so I'm looking at how they choose to attach or, um, or sort of unattach themselves to um, groups, but also kind of formal um, aesthetic um, movements. Fantastic. Any footnotes to share as well? No, no. no. Okay, <laughs> great. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, meet your panel. Great. Well, we've got a lot of business to attend to this evening because in my greed and rashness, I selected five exhibitions, <laughs> thinking somehow we could uh, cover them all in the same time that we spend on four. And I think we will by virtue of the fact that this is a panel of quick, sharp minds uh, who won't be mincing their words and won't need to hum and heart too much. So we will get through our business. Uh, for those of you who are new to this series, let me just uh, quickly say what the format is. We've, as I say, looked at several exhibitions around Greater New York. Uh, we are going to show two videos in the course of the evening. In the first, um, we look at installations of the first three exhibitions, uh, Jack Witten, uh, Tamara Gonzalez, and Sadie Barnett. Um, then the panel will look at each of those shows and um, uh, take them apart, uh, come to some agreements or agree to differ on what we make of those three shows. Then it's the chance for the audience to uh, chip in, and we'd love to hear your comments. Um, we prefer comments to questions because uh, the questions, well, we just prefer comments to questions. But <laughs> if you can't suppress yourself, uh, if you just can't leave off the question mark, we won't beat you up. That's fine. Um, it may, however, rest in the air as a rhetorical question. Then we repeat the exercise for our last two exhibitions uh, of um, uh, Marjorie Wellish and Marina Adams have a second round of chipping in with rhetorical questions and strong statements, and then, best of all, run across the world, run across the street for a beverage. So that is the format of the evening. Let's get going, uh, please, uh, uh, Booth, with our first video, video number one, Witten Gonzalez Barnett. And panelists, we can just swivel around in these comfy chairs and <laughs> ready to watch the screen. Jack Whitten is an abstract painter who's been at work since the 1960s, each decade witnessing breakthroughs in material exploration. In his handling, acrylic paint becomes a visceral and sculptural element. In tandem with his abstract experimentation, Whitten's long career has delved thematic complexities of African-American culture and politics. He was born in Alabama in 1939 and moved to New York in 1960. His present show, his first at Hauser and Worth, 
has recent examples from several ongoing idioms. Large tableau, tessellated in tiles of hardened acrylic that he calls the quantum walls. The tenth in his black monolith series, this one honoring Muhammad Ali. Square format works in almost sculptural relief that he calls the portals. Graphic works that use graphite and wax on a synthetic ground and a sculpture in different woods, marble, and mixed materials. Like Jack Whitten, Tamara Gonzalez has also brought together works in several distinct formats. Again, there's one sculptural work, in her case, a giant rumba shaker or maraca that greets the viewer to her exhibition at Klaus von Nichtsagend, her second with this Lower East Side Gallery. There are three other groups of work, large canvases, generally five by six feet, worked in acrylic and spray paint, a suite of drawings in colored pencil, and tapestries woven at her instruction but freely interpreted from photographs she provided to artisans in Peru. Many of the motifs in her work derive from her international travels, which in recent years have included Peru. Brooklyn-based Gonzalez was born in California in 1959. Baxter Street at the Camera Club of New York presents a solo exhibition by Sadie Barnett, who was a 2015 artist-in-residence at the Studio Museum in Harlem. Do Not Destroy takes as its primary source the FBI files of the young emerging artist's father, Rodney Barnett. In a way that will remind some viewers of Ta-Nehisi Coates' memoir of his father, Rodney Barnett served in the military, subsequently joined the Black Panthers and was under FBI surveillance. Copies of pages from his file, obtained at $1 per page under the Freedom of Information Act, are presented in a wall display, some embellished in the artist's hand in aerosol paint and rhinestones. Also on display are enlarged 1960s snapshots of Rodney in military and panther attire, other text-based works, and an artist's book. Good, great. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, a big thank you, by the way, to Miguel Gesso, our videographer, for splendid work as ever. So, Jessica, would, would Jack Whitten be an example? He doesn't, of course, exactly go that sort of Alan Shields or, or um, um, route of uh, literally a kind of the, s the surface flying off the wall, but there is... Um, an excitement or anxiety, depending on one's view, with the, the, the notion of uh, paint as, as a medium that behaves properly, uh, sitting on the canvas, uh, doing its depiction thing, um, that actually becoming a kind of sculptural entity, a material to be worked in, in that way, in, in almost relief. Um, how, how profoundly significant do you think, in coming to terms with his work, that, that attitude to materials, is that attitude towards material? I think Witten is a, perpetually experiments with all of the things one can do with paint. Um, I think if you're familiar with his work, um, you've, you're probably most familiar with his squeegee paintings, um, which kind of splay um, paint in these horizontal abstriations across canvas. But these works, I think he's returning to the thingness of paint. Um, so painting for the tableaus feels 
to me, much more topical rather than um, um, gestural. And so I know that th these works were also, he's interested in thinking about space and the cosmos and entry points and entryways. And so um, one, I, I see the use of his ceramic tiles, like painting on tile and then apl applied to canvas. That seems to be... Um, a, an interesting departure for him um, and yeah. for me too, visually, but also conceptually. It's, um, yeah, it's a, I'm still thinking about that show. I don't have an opinion about like it's in terms of it's like, oh, is it a great show? Is it, but I'm, I'm more so interested in like what he's doing with, with materiality at this point in the game. Yeah, he's an inveterate experimenter, isn't he, uh, John? That, um, um, do we have a sense, I, I know that you're the author of a book on Jasper Johns, so it, it sort of, but it, it would be a question to ask anyway. It's an, it's an, he's an artist who uh, has this um, facture, this materiality, this desire to um, manipulate and see where materials lead him. Um, but he's also an artist um, very much motivated by subject. There's, a, there's iconography in, within his abstraction. Is that a is that a Johnsian thing, or is that something that goes? Uh, I mean, not just Johnsian, but is that does that put him in in a, a camp with artists like Jasper Johns, um, for whom uh, um, there's a kind of fraught well, relationship? Well, I think with I mean I think of Jack as an artist that at a certain point in abstraction they wanted to drive subject matter out. What you see is what you see, mm -hmm. and he belongs to the group of artists that wanted to bring subject matter back in mm -hmm. and thought it, art is not a purely optical experience. I mean, he's using an afro comb to drag the paint across. There's all sorts of ways he tries to bring subject matter in because mm -hmm. he recognizes right away that painting cannot be a pure object or a pure thing. Mm -hmm. And he kind of makes us, not makes us, but provokes us to think about all the ways painting connects to the world in everyday life. Mm -hmm. And you know, and then does all those memorials for different people. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a kind of grand ambition that he has that I think is quite interesting and that he should be recognized for, that he brings another kind of ambition to abstraction that I feel He's one of the first to really do it. Yeah, yeah. I, is it simply, Jennifer, are we, are we satisfied with this idea of him um, as, as a joyfully abstract artist who wants subject matter, or is there some intrinsic... Well, I don't think it's all that joyful. Well, uh, the, the subject <laughs> may not be joyful, but the, uh, the play with material. So there's a play with the material and a desire for there to be subject. But is, is there some intrinsic anxiety about abstraction that's revealed by the need for subject? Uh, I think more interestingly, he's really using the abstraction and the materiality as an effective metaphor for discussing things, um, societal issues, identity, race. Um, to my mind, that's what he's doing with abstraction. Um, so it's, it's definitely not in his work an end in itself. <coughs> 
And as to your earlier question about John's, I think the more significant thing, the reason that I appreciated the show is that it's kind of one step, one more step in acknowledging Witten as a significant um, inventor of a lot of forms and using the squeegee, I think, decades before Richter did. Um, and um, using abstraction uh, really to address these issues. To my mind, he was dealing with um, issues that we're talking about right now in terms of um, walls and borders um, and, and portals, whether they're penetra penetrable or impenetrable. So um, definitely an experimenter in terms of process-based abstraction, but certainly not using it as an end in itself. And right. subject matter, I just want to, if you yeah, saw please. his show at Alan Stone or the early work that he did before he did the squeegee, mm -hmm. you realize that subject matter was important to him right from the beginning. It's not something he drifted into. It's, it's really how did he hold on to it through each change and how did it change as he held on to it, which I think is really yeah. an interesting thing about his work. Yes. Yeah. Um, so then it begs the question though why why abstraction why why i mean we've 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 en we've enjoyed some of us um the, the carrie james marshall exhibition which we discussed here last year um a very powerful body of work um it, it, you sh there's there's almost an assumption that um if one's if the motor of one's art is social commentary that uh some considerable degree of realism, that the language of realism, of uh, verism, um, uh, is potent and ready-made for uh, social commentary. Um, so what do you think is the particular appeal of abstract language um, to, to an artist uh, so motivated by um, issues of uh, um, society? class, race, um, Jessica? Well, I think Witten's achievement is that he doesn't allow um, a kind of singularity um, in, into how we um, receive the work. And so he proves that abstraction is capacious enough to, um, to be this container for both the social and the formal, that they don't have to be a zero-sum game. Um, and arguably, as um, Jennifer alluded to, like Witten has been working for so long and has this project, and I think alongside artists like Ed Clark, like people who are super committed to being um, labeled as abstractionists, but um, did not um, compromise all of the possibilities of what form can do and so if there's an anxiety that's being experienced, I think it's on our end, like right. actually approaching the work with an open mind um, rather than, you know, the ra rather than what um, Witten and, and figures like Clark and Al Loving um, or belatedly and um, Mel Edwards even have been doing for a very, very, very long time. Mm -hmm. Right. I think we often hold artists of color to that kind of standard. We, we expect that of them. Like we want them to be dealing with societal issues um, in a very transparent way. 
And I think it's a problematic, um, critical mode. Um, in fact, you know, we were talking about, you know, another figure like Gilliam earlier, Sam Gilliam. Um, but I think that, uh, yeah, it's worth, I think that Witten really believes in the vocabulary of painting and materiality and abstraction to embody those issues. So I think really that's what his work is bringing. Also, Mel Edwards, when he was a young man in Los Angeles, talked about that he understood jazz and abstraction as being going together, and he didn't see why one should be a figurative artist, that he was instantly attracted to being an abstract artist, and then he felt... You know, if you're listening to Dizzy Gillespie and John Coltrane, you would understand that. And right. I think that's yeah. that's an important thing to kind of bring back into into play in the conversation about some of these artists. You know, that music does, or a certain kind of music does inform them. You know, or or in, inspire them. There's a scholar. Um there's a scholar at Columbia right now who, for the past few years, has been doing these oral history interviews, and he um, he's a literary scholar, Brent Hayes Edwards, and he interviewed a lot of these figures who were in Soho in the lofts together, jam, you know, at jam sessions, and Ornette Coleman may have been there, and Rauschenberg may have been there, and um, Witten and Clark, and so these figures have this interconnectedness and we're right. just now i think unpacking a history that has already been um so messy and right, not right. contained or segregated right um, right yeah i mean i i, I certainly uh, would would not want to commit the folly of of assuming that a person's um racial identity is going to determine in any way their approach to materials or um, subject materials or physical materials there are countless artists one can think of who are people of color who work abstractly with um, no overt uh, connection to, to politics, for instance, but um, that doesn't make them apolitical per se, it just in their art, say, Stanley well, Whitney. Stan comes Stanley to mind. Whitney said in an interview with me that he didn't want to, he knew he wasn't a storyteller. Right. Right. So there's this notion of say a storyteller i.e a figurative artist but then that's not the only choice you may well, not that's, want it's yeah that cuts across difference I right mean, there you can be uh, jack show jack whitten shows you can be a storyteller um in abstract paintings yeah. and countless figure painters who paint flowers or reclining nudes show that you don't have to tell a story exactly uh, and you can be concerned with abstract formal issues but happen to have bodies or flowers in your paintings um, or any other subject right. uh, that's a vehicle for a, a, a more purist. It's, it's maybe a, the issue is of uh, um, an, a symb symbolism over purism. I mean, that abstraction has that has potential to be many different things. But um, pursuing ab an abstract language symbolically um, would, to some extent, I think, negate the abstractness of what you're doing. Um, it, I mean, it, I don't think Witten is all that bothered or concerned about whether he's viewed, how abstractly he is to be viewed, but he's chosen, um, chosen non-representation 
um, mode, but with clearly a very strong narrative impulse. I don't know about that, David. I think one would ar some people would ar would argue, like um, like Arthur Jaffa, who just had a show up at uh, Gavin Brown in Harlem, um, and it, it would argue that black life is an abstraction, and so abstraction is the only way to actually capture this kind of like por porosity of mm. um, signification and of experiences, and and so. I don't know if if Witten choosing to imbue a gesture or a mark with some type of symbolic power forecloses its possibility as being an abstraction. It's just more so we have to change our notion of what purism is. Like, yes, you know, yeah. I, I don't. I don't think it's a, it, it's an issue of um, identity. I, I mean, I, I think it's an issue of uh, what one really feels the, the power of abstraction, the purpose of abstraction mm -hmm. um, is. And um, obviously an artist working now, even an artist beginning six decades ago as he did, um, the <coughs> reductive Im uh, impulse that motivated pioneering abstraction was a done deal by the time Jack Whitten or even Jasper Johns, uh, you know, is 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 joining the scene. Um, that, um, uh, but that um, the desire to bring subject matter back into abstraction or um, to to acknowledge the degree to which it had always been there puts um, what I would call the impurist at at odds with the impulse that also leads in the, op in the opposite direction um, towards a minimal art, for instance. Instead of thinking about abstraction, let's think for a moment about what was really going... His career starts in 19... He's at Cooper Union from 1960, so his career gets going in earnest almost around the time of primary structures. Um, so minimal art is the, the backdrop mm -hmm. against which um, he is producing. Um, is there a resistance to reduction in his work? I think he uses processes. I mean, he is a process-based abstractionist um, in the sense that he sets up systems for working. So in that sense, it's related in some way to minimalism because he set up this structure of carving out these tiles from paint and then setting them into wet paint. So there's a process behind it. But I think what interests him in there is... Um, uh, adding irregularity to it um, so that it can do something like tell a story. So he's definitely not an end game process based um, abstractionist at all. But also, his process has to do with labor, right? Right. And labor, in his case, becomes, it harkens back to the anonymous laborer. Right. right? And the anonymous labor is what built America or the pyramids. I mean, it goes back. And it's like he's, like, he's not saying an artist is an elitist, right? Which in some ways you could say that some of the minimalists had a kind of elitist attitude. And he really undermines that in, I think, quite an interesting way. Mm -hmm. 
So in contrast to, say, Carl Andre <coughs> or Dan Flavin going into a, a workshop, buying, going into a shop, buying industrially pre-made tiles or bricks. Bricks is the perfect. So Carl Andre's bricks are the um, alienated labor either of machines or of uh, anonymous workers. Um, so do we see this as a kind of anti-brick thing, the, the, um, the, the, the tessellation in, in Witten? Well, I think he's against fabrication and fabrication. Against prefabrication. Yeah, prefabrication. He is the fabricator. Yeah, and I think that's very different than having someone else fabricate your work. I think he's making this work at a time when fabrication becomes yeah. popular. And then the, also, if you think of the rigidity of Stella's shape and the rigid geometry within it, he's also undermining that. I mean, there's so many things that he does but he doesn't announce it it's like either you see it or you don't right you yeah. either kind of sympathetic or you're not he's not he's not trying to be charming he's not trying to be endearing all things that you have to give him credit for they are actually. certainly uningratiating yeah and i think that's, that's, that's one of the immediate things that i liked about his work mm. you know he doesn't try to be seductive i mean there's something even in the portals you just go this is gloppy material yeah. You yeah. know, so you kind of have various reactions to it as you're looking at it that are pretty visceral, which I think is great. Yeah, they're and not also, really portals. Right. And they're not portals, but you're, you're thinking he's thinking about passage from this world to the next. And you're going, ah, you know, so there's all sorts of ways he mm. gets you to think, and, but he never offers you a conclusion, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Which is pretty wonderful. It, it does strike me, and the audience might think either I'm a, um, a moderator who's stirring things up a little bit with a, a love-in for an artist, or, um, or I'm a, a, a bigot, one way or the other. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I do have this little resistance to, to Jack Whitten's work, and that is that um, um, before he's... Before... He, um, you know... If we all love his work, and... Um, even if we didn't, he's there showing at Hauser and Worth now. Uh, that somehow um, this means that um, we see his differentiation from uh, the the mainstream as a, a, a conscious uh, or belligerent uh, uh, reaction. Uh, whereas before one knows and understands and accepts um, the artist as being major, one might just see the distinctions as being well, he's not there yet, or he's not with that agenda. He, he's doing something actually a bit more old-fashioned. And um, it's, I think, quite possible to see his work, uh, to read his work, as being actually very close to a lot of um, abstraction of the 1950s, and that um, um, the work almost could slot into a show of a kind of salon abstraction, um, of particularly more European than American sensibility. You mean like soulage? Yeah, soulage and um, and, and also um, uh, de style and um, um, quite a number of uh, particularly French but also um, East European abstract artists. Mm -hmm. um, but then Jay de Fale was influenced by right. de style. 
I mean, I think there's no harm in being interested. No, no. What I'm no, thinking but, uh, is that I think it, history. It, is a, it think, is a sensibility. Yeah, but I think this history is way more messy than mm. we've admitted. You know, what I mean, and that that messiness has to be unpacked a little bit more. Yeah, that you could be influenced by. You know, despite what Clifford still says, you could be influenced by a European, and it would be bad, mm-hmm. mm. right? I think Whitney is also proudly part of a lot of those traditions. I see him as an artist who's, um, who is, par- uh, who likes being part of that conversation and is oh, dealing yeah. with that conversation. To me, it's more problematic that he's not. He hasn't been enough part of you know the canon or that conversation. So, which is why the Hauser and Worth show was. I mean, it was refreshing. We didn't get. The traveling retrospective that was a couple of years ago didn't come to New York. So, mm-hmm. you know, he hasn't really been recognized in certain ways as a major figure that was contributing and responding to that conversation around abstraction from, as you said, from the 60s. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's time for us to catch up, do some more unpackaging, and look um, with, with, with reverence, even when we're not, even, even when it's belligerently uningratiating at, at this significant body of work. Fantastic. Well, let's, let's turn our mind to um, a younger artist uh, showing on the Lower East Side um, in her second show with uh, Klaus von Nichtsegen. Got it right this time. Um, <laughs> uh, Tamara Gonzalez. Here we have an art that's unabashedly, quote-unquote, exotic. Is it ironically exotic, or are we? Um, uh, is it um, uh, is it simply an exuberance for a kind of global vocabulary of forms? What would you say, Jen, in relation to the um, the tribal or ethnic or quote-unquote primitive aspect of the um, vocabulary celebrated and explored in Tamara Gonzalez's work? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely that's the question that this show raises and um, kind of has to contend with. This is all work, I guess you said in the introduction, this is all work that she did responding to travels in Peru um, and some of the um, artisanal um, culture around ayahuasca ceremonies. Um, And she has, you know, as you said, there's three bodies of work that are in this exhibition. So there's Um, textiles that were woven by um, local artisans as well as her paintings which are made by spray painting through lace and her drawings Um, you know I don't know if I have like an answer to that question of the problematics of um, the exotic I think that she's definitely someone who's Um, involved herself with that culture I think more so the exhibition is a kind of statement about or or really an entry point um, into studio process as generative and regenerative Um, so it's it's a generous exhibition in that way because it's kind of opening up it, it leaves open her processes in terms of how she's responding She's making work in the studio and then responding to this to this culture. I don't feel in the exhibition that she's um, that she's someone who considers it exotic in any way. I think that um, she, it's more that she's involved in it. 
Yeah. I think anyone who knows Tamara knows that um, in her her own self-presentation as a Hispanic woman who loves color mm-hmm. in her uh, clothing and her hair, that, uh, that, that, um, that, that there's a kind of seamlessness between... Um, the vocabulary of her artwork and 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 her her joie de vivre, as it were. Um, but do we see? Do um, Jessica, I'd be curious to get your read on the work. Do you do you see there is any degree of kind of irony or critique in an attitude towards um, uh, global languages, or do you think this is uh, that's the, the the wrong way to approach this work? We should just enjoy it or not enjoy it. Oh, I thought the most compelling and curious thing about the show was the tech were the textiles actually in that process of making work here or in her studio giving it to to weavers to interpret and then they have this sort of like carte blanche to respond to her work I thought that conceptually was really interesting and a kind of missed opportunity in how the framing of the show was done by the gallery but that being said, um, w- right now working on a show that very much takes the idea of collaboration um, quite seriously with the Rauschenberg show, I'm wondering, um, I'm wondering why Gonzalez chose not to acknowledge um, the weavers that she worked with in the um, sort of credits for um, or the tombstone information for her um, for the work. Um, I think we're kind of over this conversation about primitivism. I mean, is it just me or, or I mean, like from, you know, the Bill Rubin 84 MoMA show to to this moment now, I think we kind of see this. I, see, I think we see two things happening I, to bridge the Witten show and this show. Yeah. You see a figure like Witten taking it as his own cultural inheritance, um, a kind of European, um, or or sees himself as a part of a Western tradition, which he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also see um, artists not shying away from this kind of global language, like Gonzalez, um, who doesn't need to take permission to engage with this idea of like of other. Um, there's a kind of porosity there too that's really interesting. Um, but I thought the strongest work in the show were, were actually the textiles because that contingency, that like space for, um, that, that, that room that, that she has left for interpretation, um, which is exciting to me in spite of, I think this idea of labor that John, you, you mentioned earlier. I think that's why we're asking that question about credit, which I did too, you know, but I think it's because um, they were free form um, responsive to the work. So they weren't executed according to her diagrams, really. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why there's that space for that question. Right, that she should have named the weavers. I thought that was the one issue I had. Mm -hmm. Also, I think the whole thing, it's not just... um, uh, it's carry not, on. Sorry, what? No, no, carry on, please. Oh, it's not just uh, another culture or the other. It's also the ayahuasca culture, which yeah. you have to bring into it, which is pretty widespread among at least people I know. 
I mean, it's about a drug, right? You all know that. Probably half of you take it every night. <laughs> <laughs> and it ha you know, I mean, that goes back to William uh, Burroughs writing to Ginsburg, did he, the age letters. That's where I first heard about it when I was like 16, that this is the drug of all drugs. Mm -hmm. You know, it produced the purest, greatest hallucinations. Right. And in a way, you see this kind of, I mean, that piece instantly reminded me of Wafred Olam's yeah. Jungle. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of allusion to that. So there's lots of things going on in her work, I think. But there is this kind of, I mean, how do you look at them at some point, right? And then the, and these kind of stylized figures, I thought it was really about a kind of shamanism. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. in a way, that's a kind of, I mean, I just, well, I, I'm now plugging for myself. I just put together a book called The Wild Children of William Blake, in right. which I do mention Tamara as being one of them. It's the whole notion that Kenneth Anger says the occult never goes away, mm -hmm. right? That against the rational, there's this other belief systems, and you can kind of uh, dismiss them, but you can't get rid of them, right? So does her work, do you feel, um, does it... In does it embody the the heightened state that comes from that um, ecstatic view, or is it is it referencing? That's that's that's. I think question. it's. I think it actually uh, is more than referencing. I think she's trying to reach it in her work. Right. Mm -hmm. To be honest, that's how I felt, particularly with some works that were pretty uh, visually jarring to kind of mm. concentrate on. You know, I mean, they're like tattoos, skin. Yeah. There are all sorts of ways to begin to see the patterns. You know, if you stand there for 20 minutes, you don't know what might happen to you. <laughs> <laughs> Did the earth move for you, Jessica? <laughs> oh, not at all. <laughs> oh. Um, you know, I thought the the sculptural element was a little flat, fell a little flat for me. Maybe the rambo, yeah, yeah, the maraca, like maraca. Mm. Um, as this like thing that greets you when you walk into the space. But that's, I don't know if that was successful. What I mean, I'm curious about your thoughts of, about this, Jen, about the maraca. Yeah, like the the kind of yeah. I don't think it added that much to the exhibition. I mean, I think it was. It functioned like you said it kind of greeted you like this figural thing and there's also a wall a wall drawing too but um really those three other elements were kind of the major part of the show as far as the like ayahuasca um reference or conversation i felt it the most in the drawings um they kind of have that really multifaceted like la layering and combination of imagery and approaches that felt very um, free and again as I said earlier that kind of generative and regenerative um, imagery that I think was referencing that or dealing with it I mean she's someone who's dealt with um, ceremonies in her work before so she right. spent time in India and so and then her um, paintings with the lace are dealing with um, Catholic upbringing so this idea of um, work referencing ceremonial um, traditions and the objects and colors and patterns around those ceremonies is is not new for her yeah yeah i i i just always do question um perhaps i'm a little bit the skeptic when it comes to 
heightened states um, <laughs> uh, and, and mystical trance uh, in work because um, uh, I feel if if you want that, um, the ritual itself is the place to be, not a sort of artifact produced by the ritual, um, uh, um, unless it's it, unless it really is. Um, almost involuntary on the part of, uh, you know, in, unless it is a, an anthropological mm-hmm. curation of artifacts and objects that come out of a ceremony, um, to, to, to be producing work as if it has come from a ceremony or as if it has come from a, a heightened state. Mm-hmm. Um, we have such, um, such knowledge uh, of and such experience of so many authentic works coming from um, such places um, that... I get a little. Mm, I don't know. I'm I'm sort of betwixt and between with work that may not really hold up uh, for, for in its formal invention, but is tugging on my conscience as being ah, but this this is something that comes from an ecstatic state. But really, it's sort of rather referencing an ecstatic state. Well, I think that's. I, I thought this is her most her best show. I mean, I, I've been kind of looking at her work for a while, and I just thought right. she really kind of put it together in the most interesting way that she uh, uh, ever right so so i understand what you're saying but i think it's really for her a kind of breakthrough show mm-hmm. particularly with the tapestries and but i thought the paintings were the best paintings she's done i mean the the ones in the back room yes the big ones in the back i've liked her sculptures in the past i i think her her, her real exuberance and and her her real facture comes out with in three dimensions, not specifically with the maraca in this show, but in um, in in more kind of wayward three uh, D or uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. intermediate kind of multimedia works in the past have have, have satisfied me. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I felt that there was something a little uh, systematic in and programmatic rather in this. Um, um, Tripartite drawings to paintings to mm-hmm. tapestries, um, but but nonetheless a, a very interesting um, very interesting approach, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I am interested in and we could talk for a lot longer on this whole relationship with um, the other with the um, the anonymous worker as it were uh, that you get when artists collaborate with specific groups from. Uh, non-Western uh, situations. Um, there, there are so many artists from, from uh, the sculptors, like sculptor like Stephen Cox through, and Anthony Gormley, and the British artist Gormley working with Mexican ceramicists and Cox with um, Indian artisans, where you um, really feel the the artist is harnessing uh, the metaphorical value of his workers. Um, uh, as much as the formal quality, so um, I I wasn't um, I don't know if it would have helped to see a label that had the names of whichever individuals did the weaving up there. Really, I think it was made very explicit in in accompanying press materials that this I mean it was exploited that in a positive sense that this was a collaboration with that tradition. So, but the politics of it certainly need more unpackaging, more. Um, investigation. Um, so, on the subject of politics, um, uh, Sadie Barnett, uh, an artist um, 
who puts the personal, the father, up there, um, explores um, the trauma and the the um, the indignation of of uh, um, a victim of surveillance. It's fascinating to actually read the FBI files um, yeah. because uh, they're clearly sending out their agents to speak to everyone who's ever worked with Rodney um, Barnett, trying to tease out, you know, is he anti-American, is he subversive? And they must have been, uh, one really feels sorry for the FBI agents, they must have been really frustrated that everyone was saying he was a model worker and a, re a really nice guy and very modest and um, uh, turned up on time and gave plenty of notice when he couldn't uh, carry on his job and blah, blah, blah. Um, so... Um, uh, and then we have, however, the the um, the artist's Sadie's embellishments of her father's file with the r with the rhinestones, with the ink, with the pink. Um, what what really grips us here is it is it the the story itself or is it um, the artist's uh, transformation of those materials? What would you say, um, Jessica? Hmm. Um. So this show is kind of like a part two to an exhibition that Sadie had um, at the Oakland Museum a few months ago. And she takes up this auto, uh, when I first met her, let me backtrack and say, when I first met Sadie, she described herself as a conceptual artist. Um, and she was really interested in thinking through um, like, like culture, youth culture in California, was interested because she grew up in, in the Bay Area and um, was interested in like the 80s and, and sort of this kind of like common culture um, from that particular arena. And so to encounter this work, um, I see this, I see her con conjoining her interest in that with also her She's entering this autobiographical mode, but through the lens or, or through the narrative of her father. So she is a young artist taking her father's um, surveillance as the subject matter. Um, and I think that to me was very compelling because how often do you get this um, record of one's relatives um, or the closest, the people who are closest to you, how, often are you able to encounter them in the archive? Um, and another layer of that is that this, her father, Rodney, is a gay black man who was in the party for one year um, and then was surveilled for five years. Mm -hmm. So you have this kind of macro and micro um, view. You have the the intimacy of of a familial relationship but then you also have Sadie examining her father as a record um does does Rodney's sexuality come out in um explicitly in the work I mean now I hear it and I'm hearing it for mm -hmm. the first time the the use of rhinestones and pink takes on a new potential significance John um how how did you what what feelings did you get for for the father and for the daughter in this show? Well, I had a. I mean, first of all, it was the surveillance that just completely fascinated me because the idea that these people, as you, you know, would examine someone so closely, 
because they see he's a potential threat when it's clear that he's not a threat, mm -hmm. that they're frightened of the Black Panthers. I mean, that's really the clear issue that's yeah. never stated, but it's if you can't figure that out by the time you've left the show, you've got real problems. <laughs> and then what does that mean for this day and age and the notion of vetting? I mean, it just hit me in a million ways. And then I, the rhinestone, all that stuff I didn't get, but I was really intrigued by. And I finally, I don't know that I thought that he was gay. or I mean, it just intrigued me. And I, I liked that it was a kind of disjuncture that made me think about all the other disjunctures yes. that one would have with this man. I mean, that he goes from the army to the Panthers, that he's a nice guy, that he's mm. this, he's that, that he's multiple people. Mm -hmm. Yes. Seen under the lens of he's a bad person, right? Mm. Under this lens is trying to prove something, all these other sides of him come out, and I found that completely intriguing. Mm -hmm. He's also the subject of his daughter's surveillance, though, isn't he, uh, Jack? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and also I read that he owned a gay bar, and... Um, in San Francisco, I believe so. But I don't think you learn that from this particular show. I know that she did a larger version where there were more documents. Um, I mean, my it's interesting to hear you say she defined herself as a conceptual artist because really my question about the show was like, why are the documents on the wall, basically? Um, and she's someone who makes artist books, actually. Yeah. And there's a, there's an artist book in the in the gallery. Um, so you really want to, I mean, when you encounter this, it's the story that's really compelling. Mm -hmm. um, the rhinestones, I don't think she, and all of that, I don't think she really goes far enough. It's a little bit, to my mind, very like a superficial gesture. Um, and the, I think you were asking something about her. I mean, that to me, the rhinestones and all of that was about her and their relationship. That's what she was really trying to tell. Um, with that, that she was adding, you know, she was surveilling her father and, and adding these things. But definitely... Um, and taking possession, um, mm -hmm. uh, putting her stamp on it. Mm -hmm. I mean, th so the, mm -hmm. the documents themselves are stamped, sort of confidential, and they're redacted, mm -hmm. and then they're made open and available under the Information Act, and so that's another stamp to say, yes, you can look at them. And then there's a kind of cannibalization of these artifacts. Well, it's like she's trying artist. to close the distance between them. Int make make something you know, intimate out yeah, of Yeah, because in some way the, the documents show the distance between them in some way, mm. right? And she can never overcome that distance. She can only try and touch it, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I read that, um, or I didn't read, I was speaking with... Um, with the the gallerist, or okay, say so the director of the camera club, rather about um, this work, and she mentioned that Barnett views the um, the application of glitter and um, these you know plastic jewels and um, the aerosol uh, paint, all of those things, as like graffiti to her, mm. and. If when you're in the gallery, depending on how much time you spend, you'll you'll realize that some of the documents are about Rodney Barnett, and some of them are about the Black Panther Party in general, right. and some of them are just you know one or two sentences from a court case relating to Angela Davis, because I believe that um, Barnett was called to 
um, be a witness as a part of Angela Davis's defense, but for some reason, which is undisclosed to us, um, he was not called upon to take the stand. Um, so Sadie is using these um, different modes of mark making um, as, yeah, cannibalization, but then also signaling to us when she wants us to pay attention to a particular turn in the narrative. Um, whether they're effective, I think they're more confusing than, mm -hmm. than effective, but um, yeah, she's still working it out. I yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> what I was going to say. It seemed to me that she was kind of figuring it out. I know there was another installation that she did. I think she's trying to figure out um, how much the legibility is important that we can read, because we can't actually read all of the documents in this installation. I mean, some of them are up high, some of them are down low. You can't really read them. Yeah, so they I think are, she's experimenting. And, and the gallery. They're rendered as artifacts. They're artifacts. They're not uh, right. primarily text, although I think most of our interest in them is as the text per se. Not, I guess not many of us have actually seen uh, um, a procured uh, FBI file on, on a particular individual. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of historically fascinating um, stuff. And um, almost, I feel, the price I have to pay for the prurient historical interest of reading uh, Rodney Barnett's file is to... Um, go through the process of looking at Sadie uh, Barnett's installation. Um, th that um, the, the, There's something bizarrely dainty about these interventions. Um, yeah. I wasn't privy to uh, her father's uh, being gay, therefore, um, uh, but as soon as I know that, it seems inevitable to read uh, the, the glitter and the the embellishments as some some kind of um, commentary on 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 his sexuality, and if I didn't know that, it would seem impossible not to read them as being a kind of uh, filial thing, um, uh, a daughter wanting to make um, a, a, a an intimate, sweet relic out of what's actually a barbaric um, artifact connected to her. But then her she's dad. also. Coming out of, I mean, she was born in 87, I want to say. Like, this is the era of Lisa Frank. I mean, we're all mm -hmm. kind of familiar with this, like, um, this embellishment, this, uh, this, the way in which, and, and I don't think she would categorize herself as, like, being heavily, like, a part of girl culture, but it's a, it's a visual cue that lends itself to different types of Meetings. interpretations yeah. uh, you know like it's 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 very much about childhood yeah. as e and it could very well be this um cue or code to mm. or coding of her father's sexuality but mm. i don't know i don't believe that she wants to limit it to to those two conclusions mm -hmm. but um, there's a there's a definite incongruity between mm -hmm. the um the brutal documentation and this girly touch Mm -hmm. And um, um, graffiti is mentioned, so there's there's almost a sort of drawing of the moustache on the Mona Lisa, except it's not the Mona Lisa; it's an FBI file. But mm -hmm. it's it's to 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 make this very grown-up thing about her dad intersecting with uh, one of the toughest agencies of federal government, and her making an art installation out of it and personalizing it and putting her signature on it. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good time now to bring in our audience on these three shows. Um, 
and uh, uh, Joel has the has the mic. I have been um, in the last few panels taking the habit of jumping out of my seat and um, um, <laughs> being a sort of Oprah Winfrey who walks around the room. But um, do you miss it? Do you want to do that today, David? I feel I could uh, hold back and okay. leave you to um, <laughs> to choose who to call upon, and let's let's um, let's see. So, audience. Uh, it'd be lovely um, to uh, I want to hear whatever you have to say, of course, but it'd be great to to see how we can tie some common threads between these three shows to do with uh, symbolism, embellishment, uh, material, labor, um, and um, uh, relationship with codes. But sir, um, I have a more <coughs> I guess it'd be more of a comment. I'm always curious, um, let's say, if they're artists of color. Um, if, if, say, I'm sorry, what's your uh, Jessica? Jessica, I thought so. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like there's a pressure, if you're an artist of color, that you have to deal with those issues. Um, you know, you Kara Walker, Carrie James Marshall, Jacob Lawrence, you know. <coughs> uh, it, it's not to say that there's anything um, not apropos about that, but it, it, you, you often see that, it, especially the more of a minority you are, the more you see those issues prevalent in the work. And I, I think what Witten, for me, is very interesting, and I think John Yao mentioned Sam Gilliam, as these are guys who are reaching outside themselves and outside their circumstances and maybe making a, a brave attempt to learn something or to deal with issues that are not part of their nomenclature. Right. You know, if, yeah. you're, if you're... I think, you're I think you're summarizing much of what we actually discussed in relation to Witten, isn't it? Because yeah. we really very much took that tack of actually being precisely interested in... Um, there was quite a bit of discussion about um, not projecting onto people I, of color. I don't know if it's a pressure, but as an Asian-American, I just think it's a fact. So you want to deal with the facts of your life, whatever they are and however you construe them. I never felt like I was pressured to be an Asian-American poet. I just realized I was. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think, so there was a conversation that was went viral um, last week, uh, or the week prior, uh, coming out of Sundance, Jessica Williams, um, and Selma Hayek are having breakfast with a group of other um, women actresses and people in the industry. And Selma says to um, Jessica, who are you when you're not black? Like when you go home, when you're, who are you when you're not black and not a woman? <laughs> and it was so right. offensive because and, and Selma yes. is like this. She's Lebanese and Mexican comes from has experienced her share of, um, she's a woman of color and has experienced her share of hardship, but yes. it was a very myopic view that like one chooses to be a minority. Yeah, taking off the mask. That you can take it, yeah. So, so I think we have to keep that in mind when we, um, when we're thinking about difference, whether it's race, class, sexual orientation, I mean, we're, hmm. like, 
that is a human experience is to differentiate, but it also, in many ways, it's about coming together too. And so, like John said, being being gif gifted or burdened with an identity that you didn't choose, yeah, um, that is effective life. Exactly. And something else to bear in mind is yeah. that uh, just hypothetically imagine that um, the art world wakes up to more and more and more people of color, for instance, um, uh, as the artists they most want to look at and show. Imagine a scenario in which um, uh, a, a smaller, there's a smaller expectation that all artists are white, straight males. But those artists who are white, straight males, their art would begin to look white, straight, and male. Uh, I mean, we shouldn't forget the otherness of the non-other. That, in fact, the uh, main, <laughs> the 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 norm, what we assume to be the normal, um, is actually um, presenting and 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 um, performing, um, say, whiteness, straightness, masculinity. Um, uh, but we maybe don't see those because we uh, they're they're transparent and uh, mm -hmm. we do see the other because it's opaque. Um, more more comments um, on that theme or others? Yes. So I actually want to add to the conversation of abstraction and codes. Are you able to hear me? I think this is yes. better. Okay, so um, I had a very different reaction to Jack Whitten's show, and I, um, I have to give the caveat that I have not seen the show in person yet, but um, I think that one of the potentials for abstraction has to do with a kind of slipperiness, and especially when that connects to social abstraction, an abstraction that wants to convey meaning and a message. Um, I thought it was really interesting that the conversation on Jack Witch and mostly revolved around kind of a European um, tradition of abstraction when what I saw was actually that the palimpsest of the squeegeed mark that for me comes out of New York school abstraction had migrated into a different sphere. And I saw, I personally saw direct quotations of African art, especially uh, Bonama and um, Bonama sculptures and memory jars and thinking about the palimpsest as being something that is deeply embedded in life and actually has the potential through aggregate um, to intervene in life mm. and art as being a verb in a lot of African cultures. Um, right. and, and even, um, you know, there were even some moments in his work where I thought of the tiling as being um, part of a folk culture that I've seen in, in Philadelphia, just walking around the streets and seeing a lot of mosaics as, as being part of a way to beautify life in an urban setting. So right. Those Great. Are my two Thank cents. you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah Goffstein. Cool. Um, I think room for time for one more comment, if we, if we have somebody bursting for one. I'm a little conscious of time now, but I do want to, um, I do want to hear more. So that dilemma, greedy for more and wanting to move on. <laughs> All right. 
Let's hold it till the second uh, round of uh, comments and um, let's see the video, please. Video number two, as we move into uh, the work of Marjorie Wellish and Bushwick and Marina Adams at Salon 94. Um. Picking up the theme of tessellation from Witten's exhibition, veteran quote-unquote conceptual formalist Marjorie Wellish presents a series of works of the last several years titled Before, After, Oaths, Grey that see proliferations of tile-like squares painted in loose grids that partially fill white grounds. Her paintings, each a diptych of 20 by 32 inches in acrylic on board, are accompanied by terse text by the artist, which all begin with the question, what is difference? A photograph at the entrance of her show at Art 3 in Bushwick identifies a large four-panel painting from 1984, The High Valley 19, and a 2009 book collaboration with James Siena as, quote-unquote, framing the practice, as she puts it, of her present exhibition. Marina Adams is the last show we're thinking about this evening and might be seen as something of a palette cleanser in its explorations of buoyant shape and effulgent colour. This is mid-career painter Adams' first solo show with Salon 94 Bowery, which she has titled Soft Power. There are five large canvases on view in the sunken, soaring white cube of this Lower East Side gallery. She said of her practice, meaning and intellect in abstract art can be difficult to locate as there is no narrative to lead us into it. It is like the voice itself. I use pattern and color to create the voice, and I use structure and form to channel it. John, um, you can beat me up afterwards if I keep press-ganging you to be our resident <laughs> Jasper Johns monograph author, but um, it seemed that even more with Wellish than with uh, Witten, although um, would certainly be interesting perhaps to see these two artists in the same room someday, um, that there is this... Um, interrogation of repetition of pattern um, or the, the tessellation um, reiteration going on in uh, Marjorie Wellish um, and even if we don't know that she's um, a formidable writer and poet and um, a, a, a scholar who's sort of revered for her um, take on um, structuralism and, and, and critical theory and semiotics, um, I think we would get, wouldn't we, the, the linguistic aspect of what she's doing. Um, what do you make of the balance in her work between, between making and thinking? It seems to be an acute... Uh, it is pivot. for her acute. I thought, I mean, when I saw the images of the show, I thought... Oh, she's having a conversation with James Siena. Right. And, then, and I, they did a book together about uh, her poems and his prints. And then when I got there, I mean, I was answered, right? Uh, I think this is her most interesting show. I mean, I've kind of known her work off and on since the late 70s. Yes. And she's often put two things next to each other. But this seemed really about a kind of process and breakdown at the same time, which is what really intrigued me. And they visually held your attention. I like the fact that 
she never really filled the the board. Right. I mean, and 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 it was like she got to a certain point, thought, I don't really need to go further. What's the point? And that was really, I like that. I, I mean, yes. it really appealed to me in a in a big way. It's like there's a notion that you can overwork something just to prove mm. that you've done it. Right. You know, Carol Dunham always likes to date all his paintings to show you how hard he worked. Right. <laughs> like she's just good. And I, so there's a lot going on in these works that seem, on another hand, kind of dry. Yeah. You know, and the project seems dry. The overall systemicness and the uh, insistent repetition of the the diptych format and the the process, and yet each individual piece it's is distinct. animated, brought to life, and there is difference from one to the other. Jen, do you see the um, the unfinishedness? I mean, I guess the Matt Breuer show has us constantly program now to interrogate unfinishedness in, in any object. But are we looking at, we could say the heart, the glass is half empty or half full, couldn't we? I mean, uh, John says, uh, you know, why continue? Why do more? Mm. Um, I could, uh, one could also look at them and say, no, this is, this has reached this point of equilibrium. This is the perfect point at which to stop. Uh, she couldn't have stopped earlier, and she would have ruined it if she went further. This is this is it. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you get that sense, or is there something kind of I mean, my pro- about uh, my problem with the drop, the unfinished quality was, I felt like she was the one saying the glass was half empty. So mm-hmm. there was a kind of slipping of the grid that it was just it, it you know. It wasn't um, necessary, but it wasn't useful to continue. A kind of like lack of faith, actually. An exhaustion, in that, an in, intellectual exhaustion. Uh, no, there's no intellectual exhaustion. <laughs> um, uh, I think intellectually they're very rich, but they're about that process. I mean, the diptychs are basically on one hand you have the grid, and on the other side of the diptych you have this kind of patchwork of marks, and it's an investigation, as you said, of like difference and what that element does. But um, the kind of slipping away to me represented um, her her own kind of lack of faith in the object functioning independently without that conceptual formalism. Mm. 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 I mean, I, I see the, the whiteness, uh, uh, Jessica, as being kind of vital. If, if they did fill, they would just become uh, decoration. They'd be like, interesting textures like the walls on in this room i i i feel that um uh, they they the the white space like in a Cezanne, it it animates um what we do have we wouldn't have what we have without that uh vacuum uh it, it would just fill too much of what we have and another way to look at it is because there's such a ludic quality in this show we we do i think have a sense of a different state of play in each one, but following this the same set of rules, that it's almost like seeing, um, if we had to guess what the rules are without being told by the artist, um, intuit it from the evidence we have, we might see these as like uh, chess boards, and this is the final move of various games, and now we can work out the rules of chess, as it were, from where she left each one, who won, what happened. Um, what do you make of the the half done, half not done. What what does what did that strike with you? When I first saw the images before seeing the show, I thought it was more of a diagrammatic um, 
like spatial exploration. And then I was <laughs> abruptly met with um, something completely different when um, I saw the show. Um, there are two references that Marjorie's work immediately calls to mind to me. Um, first, Cezanne, The Bathers, 1903. This ongoing debate about whether or not those um, works were finished, but the idea of white space as, um, as a, not just a space of possibility to be activated or receiving a gesture or mark on, on um, canvas, or in this case, panel, but as a part of perceptual experience. And so Marjorie's work here um, is competing with this idea, for me, this idea of um, a Cezannean mark being about replicating the process of seeing and, and, and that unfolding in, in space and time. And here, there is a radical like slowness to perception here. And so you're, the white space to me dis disappears because I'm so interested in what happens from mark to mark, okay. gesture to gesture. And that leads me to the second reference, which is Maria Hasabi, who is a dancer, and is interested in what is the, what qualifies dance, what makes dance dance, and what qualifies as a movement. So her pieces deal with the slowest choreography, even moving my 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 neck wrote the rotation of my neck could count as dance for hasabi and so you experience that um that slowing down of time mm -hmm. in marjorie's work here and so that's i don't know if that's an intended because i see her work as more philosophical rather than phenomenological or perceptual um like the work as a her working on canvas, uh, not on canvas, choosing not to work on canvas, which has a, um, so when you're working on panel, there's a liquidity in, in how you make marks. Yeah. There's not much resistance. And so everything has to be so intentional. Um, there's no give. Um, so to me, the, the, the panel is more like a, a, a workstation yes. rather than something to be seen and experienced holistically. You're I, not going to get that. It's also seemed to be about control and inability to control, right? Mm. That should make all these marks across, but the color changes slightly. Mm. <coughs> it's like she couldn't control that or she chose. It's not like she didn't choose not to. I just feel like mm. how much control can you have in anything that you do mm -hmm. and what would be the point but there are so many means available to um, filling grids uh, th there's so many technologies um, just the ruler um, she she is um, all by the handmaidenness hand. the quiltedness of each piece mm -hmm. is is a, is a very deliberate strategy isn't yeah. it um, and so it's 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 a strange kind of um, you know, to have these rules, to have this grid, to have this tessellation, to have this uh, uh, dualism, to have everything that she has, all the rules and regulations that she's given herself, 
but within that to be um, absolutely obliged to to hand make, to be subject to chance, to be subject to feeling and fatigue and all that goes into the, the chemistry of, of facture for what could at the same time seem a very conceptual sort of work. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like you're like freest when you're most in prison. That's what Elizabeth <laughs> Bishop says in her one of her stories. Yes. You yeah, know. I think that's what she was exploring, especially in the, you know, a, a lot of those, a group of those pieces are all done in Payne's Gray. So I think that's what she's saying, is that even when I set up the most minimal conditions, there's an element of not having total control, and that's what interests her mm. is the variation in um, with that gray pigment. And I thought those pieces were definitely, you know, more effective than the primary color ones in that way because that kind of um, visually, like, impoverished quality that I think what what I was getting at earlier, um, the pigment really serves to that end visually. What happens if we go from an artist of the... Um, the rigor and the austerity of Marjorie Wellish to the exuberance and the joie de vivre of Marina Adams. I wonder if we're going to get trapped into the notion that um, if the artist looks like they're having more fun, the work might not be as serious. Um, what, when you step from Wellish to Adams, what, what happens to you, Jen? I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting comparison and a, big, a really big jump in a lot of ways. I mean, the only, you know, the connection I guess you can make is some kind of grid structure that exists in Marina Adams' work, um, dividing them into, like, that violet painting that's um, dividing it into quadrants is some kind of relationship to the grid, but um, Adams is certainly the opposite in the sense that she is not dealing with... um, a conceptual structure to start those paintings. You know, she's dealing with, um, I would say, containing um, human experience in um, in abstraction. Yeah, yeah. Were there cultural terms of reference that struck you, um, John, in Marina's strategy, or uh, do you feel that this is? Um, an artist fully autonomous within the... Uh, I thought the physical body of things pushing in and being pressured against each other was the most cultural thing about just interaction between people. I thought the the thing about pleasure and fun, though, I just would like to make this point. Please. One of the things that's always been held against poets associated with the New York School is that they were having a good time when they were writing. You know, like, oh, Frank O'Hara couldn't be serious because it was clear that he was having fun when he was writing. You know, like, what's wrong with having fun while you're working? It does, does it always have to be dreary labor? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I mean, there are artists that make dreary labor their calling card, but mm. I might not want to run and embrace them. <laughs> you know? I thought this is, I mean, I've been, I think she really figured out a lot of stuff in this show because yes. in other shows that she's had her other work, you had these kind of figural elements overlaying each other by yeah. moving into this kind of abstraction, but somehow not shedding the sense that there was a body involved or bodies involved. I think 
made us read it in an interesting way. I, I thought this is like her best work. Yes, and I, also I, ambitious. In a, I, in I a think nice I would agree way. with that. I've I've followed and liked her from the from as long as I've as long as I've known the work. I've as long as I have known her work, I have liked her work. Um, but uh, the 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 scale and the diversity of this body of work um, is very very impressive, and they're just such a lot of pure hedonistic retinal pleasure for me. Mm -hmm. um, what did you get from the show, uh, Jessica? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> telling. <laughs> I think you said it. <laughs> no, no, actually, I'm, I, I enjoyed the show. I'm thinking about, I'm still thinking about the, like some connections we can draw between Marjorie's work and Marina's work and, I think I I don't want to assume that there's no rigor and pleasure here. Right. Um but it's just less programmatic perhaps. Well, I don't know. I'm I I think I think this is programmatic for her. Um I also find it interesting how other people can creep into your work and how much of that you as an artist try to control or you are okay with for example second son is to me stanley whitney and and it's and that's okay for her right here and i love that she um could do that and just like bob thompson creeps into stanley whitney's work mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they they all three of them they're colorists and they take um their rigor is in their application of color and thinking about how things come together and fall apart. I also see a lot of Krasner in Marina's um, work in terms of its this exploration of um, gestural form. And wh whereas Krasner, I think, went a little too far in some of her later work in mm -hmm. that connotion between the, the human form or, um, or fruit forms, bulbous organic forms, m there's a restraint that I see here that I'm still thinking through. Um, so that hmm was just like where to begin, not right, not, not, a, <laughs> not a, a negative critique at all. Um, I thought these the paintings were more effective than the smaller works on paper. Yeah, um, the the smaller works on paper would have been more effective as prints to me. Mm -hmm. But I think the connection you make between her and Krasner is definitely there. This kind of floral, mm -hmm. but not flower, and that the kind of exuberance of the shape kind of pressing against each other. You can think it, connect that to certain works by Krasner. Yeah, yeah. I see Krasner as way too tight to be yeah, yeah, usefully yeah. compared to Adams. I see these more as like Matisse cutouts in a way. Mm -hmm. And calligraphic I, as well. I think Not she's these, definitely engaging yeah. in the conversation that is going on right now about female, about women abstractionists and why there are um, some really powerful... Um, women abstract painters, and I think Marina's part of that conversation. You were asking about sort of identity um, and culture. I definitely think her work is dealing with those issues. I think she's um, taking that kind of male gesture and language of abstraction and opening it up to qualities that we associate with the feminine. There's like an acceptance of gravity, an acceptance of the um, irregular... Um, there's a porous, you know, we were talking about porosity, and then there's a, an openness to porosity that's in her work. 
um, in a lot of different ways. So, yeah, I'm yeah. surprised that. Um, I mean, I like what you're saying at a certain level, but I'm I'm surprised at the degree of essentialism that you allow yourself in reading these works. I don't. I hadn't. Um, I think if I would see them as feminine, it would be uh, because of maybe uh, the liberty of irregularity. But um, what's very striking about her works is is um, is how how clean and structured they are without being without submitting to the uh, to preconceived geometries or um, polite relationships of color. So mm-hmm. um, that way, that it's it's perhaps keeping alive. It's it's the it's the way of um, not giving way to kind of visceral surface um, over, overly. I mean, they, I'm not saying they're flat and lacking in any kind of surface tension, but um, I kind of really like the, um, the bright authority of these paintings. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that has any gendered implication in her mind or yours or anyone else's, but um, I don't see it as gendered especially, but I, that's what the bright orderliness the the well the no 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 what are they? the bright authority authority without orderliness mm-hmm. well i think the title of the show is dealing with that you know she calls it soft power think right. that she's so that that's an immediately a reference to there yeah that that the title has more of a gender politics to it than the work perhaps i think there is there's definitely gender politics in her work yeah, yeah. Maybe in its expert, you know, gender expressivity, like how we choose to assign femininity and masculinity without necessarily kind of saying this is something a woman would do or a man would do. Yeah. I think there's a, I don't know, anyone who chooses to express themselves as a career, there is a certain amount of agency that they find in doing that thing over and over again. And so there's something very rich to me about Marina's work and that you can't, I mean, photo reproductions don't do it just, justice. Like yeah. you, color is, they're not simple relationships. And it takes so much time to like create um, the, the, the perceptual or retinal experiences that she is bringing to bear. Like you might find these happy accidents of sky blue and, and, and pink in a, in, a, in a passage of yellow. Um, but she doesn't you know? repeat herself. No. Mm. I mean, every painting is distinct in, yeah. in its color. Yeah. Like that that one is not like the one that's all these violets and dusty purples, which is, I think was yeah. my favorite painting. Mm-hmm. Um, now Jen has me thinking in gender terms. I can't help seeing a bikini in that one. But... Um, <laughs> bad. Anyway... <laughs> Ladies awesome. and gentlemen, let's have some let's have some comment from the floor on 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 two very distinct paths to system and abstraction. But do wait for the mic, please. So, uh, Joel. Thank you. Um, the the sh- the show of Marjorie really, I love the show and I love the concept of non finito in the work, but. Also, it reminds me of a book from 1965 by Deleuze, uh, Difference and Repetition. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it's really crucial in her work. And, yeah. and, and she has been extraordinarily successful by, uh, by doing those paintings in relationship to this book. Yes. And the practice of her work there is extremely non-dogmatic. It really pushed those difference in the marks, it would be very nice to have some close-up 
of her work to appreciate the yeah the those marks. Yeah. Fantastic. I'm really appreciating bringing up gender politics actually to do with Marina Adams' work because I think in the, ex in the experience of seeing them, what I was really struck by was although there is sort of a grid and a structure, the way the paint is applied and there's a confidence, there's often these like little drips that mm -hmm. are almost like these bursts of color. And that, to yeah. me, I almost found that like almost like erotic. There was like this sort of overflowing over top of that grid and even that authority to take up that amount of space and the clarity of color like I can't help but read it as actually quite symbolic and and indeed I think the title of soft power I thought you know after mm -hmm. thinking about it was just really really apt so mm -hmm. I'm really glad that came into the conversation yeah and she's dealt with erotic imagery in her work um, oh. Indian miniature painting so Cool. Well, um, yes, a last comment, if you have to wait for the mic, please. I guess this is really just following on that comment, because um, in the references you were making about Marina Adams' work, um, in the press materials that the gallery put forth, they talk about Joan Mitchell. Sorry. And I think particularly um, as a colorist, just um, along, you're talking about Stanley Whitney, I think that's totally apt, and I think um, it's just another, it's really just a comment to add her to the list of people that I think are really close references. Also in the sort of force of the work that you're talking about, the scale of the work and the difference within gesture, the subtlety of the color and then the force yeah. of the gesture, I think is another reference. Well, another reference, I mean, she said it to me because I would, Ansel Berrigan and I were standing together and we bumped into her and she said, that the title Alice 10 Feet Tall was a reference to Ansel's mother, Alice Notley, the poet. And I thought that was just interesting. And I'll throw that out as anecdotal yeah. fact. Thank you. I wrongly was reading it as a reference to Alice in Wonderland drinking the bottle and uh, getting tall and then getting short again. But uh, good to be corrected on that front. Ladies and gentlemen, there will be a surge. Follow the surge. Let's all go and um, uh, get tipsy and see a wonderful show of Brooklyn landscape painting curated by uh, Susie Spence at the, the gallery at One Gap, Grand Army Plaza, which is over the road. <laughs> <laughs>